Okay, it's really good to see all of you here today. Uh, let's go to God in prayer as we ask Him to help us to understand His Word. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we want to thank You for Your Word and we just pray that uh, You will guide us to help us to take to heart the lessons which are given to us here. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's hard to be a Christian today, uh, judging from conversations I've had with many Christians uh, judging from the commentaries that are read on the internet and, and even from the emails from Christian friends around the world, uh, the heat is being turned up on Christians. And, it, and many Christians around the world, including Singapore, find themselves hard-pressed and under attack. Uh, I guess the, the world as a whole uh, has trouble with the values uh, that Christians hold, uh, the, the absolute convictions about the truthfulness and the historicity and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I guess it condemns as arrogant the confidence of Christians in their salvation and their forgiveness and eternal life. I think that uh, as we look forward, uh, this uh, pressure on Christians is only going to get worse. In fact, as a friend of mine remarked the other day, he says that uh, we're actually moving backwards from the 21st century back to the first, into a time where actually Christians become more and more persecuted as a minority group. Now, that being so, I think it's very timely then as we come to the book of 1 Thessalonians, because actually 1 Thessalonians was written within the context of persecution against the church. Now here in chapter 1 verse 1, it begins, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, it's very interesting because if you and I were to write a, a letter or a card to someone, we would say to the church in Singapore or to the church in KL or the church in, in Indonesia or something. But here he says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean when he says in? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not sort of saying it as a, an expression of hope or a yearning or a wish, but he's making a statement that the church of the Thessalonians is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying much more than the fact that they trust in God or they follow in God, but he's trying to state, I think, that they have a real spiritual union in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think as we read this book, uh, sitting here very comfortably in the 21st century in Singapore, we may not see why it's so important for Paul to express that they are in spiritual union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the situation was very, very different in Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica was born in a time of great opposition. It lived in a time of great opposition and continued to experience great opposition even as they received this letter. Now we know of the history of the birth of the church in Thessalonica because we read it in the book of Acts. Now here, if you look at this map, on Paul's uh, uh, in Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts, we read that he went to Philippi, which is up here. Okay, this is modern-day Macedonia, Greece, right? Okay, so he went to Philippi. He went to Thessalonica. You see, Singapore is not the original red dot. Okay, this red dot here, and he went to Berea. And in each of these places, uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas preached the good news of Jesus Christ. It was received warmly by each of the city states, uh, the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. But in each of these cities, they also experience at their great cost, persecution. So in Acts chapter 16, we read just a short snippet here. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. 
after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown to prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, then in Thessalonica, But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed the mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, bring them to the crowd, sorry, and then Berea. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. So we learned that these were not uh, isolated incidents, right? They're not random attacks, but throughout the whole region, three out of three cities, right, in a row, uh, it, the Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, uh, Paul and his Christian converts experienced beatings, riots, being put in jail, and getting kicked out of the city. So the Thessalonican Christians were really facing severe persecution. And that's why Paul starts off his letter by saying, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think one thing that uh, like C.S. Lewis was saying is that we are tempted to do is to see the weakness of the church, to see the feebleness of the people, the failings of its leaders, and its lack of influence or power. But actually the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is much greater than that, right? It's actually defended and protected by God himself, who spans from the beginning of time to eternity. And it has as its head the Lord Jesus Christ protecting it. So I think that's the identity of the church. There's something that the Thessalonican Christians had to know, and we have to know too, because we're not a social club, we're not a community center, but we are people who are actually united in a very real way with God and Jesus Christ. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 2, We always thank God for all of you and continually remember you in all our prayers. Remember before God, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, love by God that He has chosen you, not be, uh, sorry, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You see, Paul wants to make sure that they realize that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not because they are smarter than anybody else or they were choosing God themselves, but rather they were chosen by God. And he knows this because he says that the word of God came to them not just with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, charismatic and Pentecostal Christians say, oh, that means that uh, Paul saw them speaking in tongues, right? some sort of supernatural manifestation of the Spirit. But actually, that, that is wrong because that doesn't actually take the context of what Paul is saying correctly. No, Paul knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them with power, with Holy Spirit and deep conviction, not because they spoke in tongues, but rather because of a transformed life, of a life which is seen with work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, when we read the Bible, we can't read verse 2, 3, 4, and 5 separately because they're actually part of one extended argument. If you look up here on this slide, you see that actually, if you, for those of you who have the ESV translation, right, you can see that actually the, the, the words which link each verse are very clear. Paul thanks God for the Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonian Christians because of their work produced by faith, their labor by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. Because, for, these people were loved by God and chosen by God because the word came to them, <clears throat> not just with the words, empty words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Now, I think this is really important for us to examine for a moment because verse 3 here shows the marks of true faith of authentic Christianity. Like John Calvin said, in this brief definition, we see a definition of what Christianity is all about. And I think that this is so important for us because if we use these three things as a marker of our Christian life, it may be like pouring cold water on us, right? To wake us up. Because we may realize that we are missing these marks of true Christianity. That actually our Christianity is not the biblical Christianity, is not with power and the Holy Spirit deep conviction. It might be something else. So what are these three things that display this true faith and the fact that God had chosen them? Well, the first thing was that they showed in their life work produced by faith. Because they put their faith in God and in Jesus, it transformed their life so that they lived in doing out works. They, 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 they did things differently than they did before. Now, I remember when I uh, became a Christian, I was about 22 years old. I became a Christian uh, in university, and, and, and I, as a result, I had many friends who knew me before I became a Christian. And then I met them many years later, and they said, wow, you know, you've really changed. Your, your language is so different now. You don't swear all the time. You know, you, you, you're, you're like so different. No? And then what they said was, well, marriage has really changed you, right? But it wasn't marriage that changed me. I mean, although marriage did change me a bit, right? But it wasn't marriage that changed me. It was, it was my faith in God and, and Jesus Christ that changed me. Because my orientation in life was no longer to live for myself, but to live for God and do things pleasing for God. I think one of the saddest things is for people to claim they are Christians, to go to church regularly, but not to actually have any work produced by faith in their life. There's no transformed life. There is no evidence that the power of God or the Holy Spirit is working in their lives with deep conviction. The second thing, the second evidence that they were chosen by God was their labor prompted by love. Now, this love here is not some sort of random, subjective love. You know, I only, I'm only nice to people who are nice back to me. No, this love, again, is a love based on being in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the love that they have, been, they have experienced from God because Jesus died for them, so they love God back. Right? They, they love God because God first loved them. And because they love God and they were loved by God, they are willing to labor. This idea of labor is the idea of toil. Toil, weariness, tightness. 
Now who works like that? Usually we only toil to the extent of tiredness and weariness because we work for money, right? right? We work for money, so that's why we toil to the point of tiredness and weariness. But here, the Thessalonian Christians were laboring to tiredness and beyond because of the love of God. Because they loved God, they were willing to labor until tiredness for other people or other things. You know, I was reading uh, uh, the internet today, not today, or the other day, that actually the world, especially young people, which is you guys, right, um, is, is, is increasingly characterized by narcissism. Okay, narcissism is an overwhelming love of self. Right? So, you know, this is fueled by social media, because in social media, we toil and labor in order to be loved by others. Uh, you know, you spend time so that other people will, will love you. But a transformed life in Christ labors in love for other people because we've already been shown love by God because He sent Jesus to die for us. So are you laboring in love? Are you laboring for the love of God and the love that God has shown you? Someone mentioned the other day that, you know, in the secular world, there's this 2080 rule. Have you heard of the 2080 rule? See, the 2080 rule is a real thing. I'm not making these things up right now. The 2080 rule is where 20% of your customers provide 80% of your revenue. But also, if you think of it another way, 20% of people, uh, I guess in your workplace, produce 80% of the work, sort of the idea. Lah. But the 2080 rule cannot be a description of God's church, right? We cannot have 20% of the people here laboring uh, for 80% of the output. Because actually, if we understand what 1 Thessalonians is saying, in the church, there is the 100, 100 rule. Because 100% of us have been shown great love by God the Father because He sent Jesus to die for us. And because we love God back, 100% of us here must labor and toil out of love for God for each other. That is the 100-100 rule, isn't it? So the question you have to ask yourself is, are we, are we laboring in love, in the love of God, toiling away for the love of other people? The last thing is, I feel, uh, the big idea of this section, verse 1 to 10. If you look at the uh, bulletin, in the middle, of the, uh, you remember I gave you the outline? There's only one word for the uh, sermon title, which is the word endure. And I think that's the main idea of today's passage. It's all about endurance. Because it says here, the last part, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that from verse 6 onwards, it really expands on this idea of endurance that the Thessalonian Christians displayed in their life. See, the idea of endurance, if you look up here on the slide, the next slide. Okay, endurance uh, really has the idea of steadfastness, okay, uh, standing firm. Now, why were they able to hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in order to endure? Right? What is the secret of endurance? How are they able to endure like year after year, severe persecution. Well, it's because they're inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus. And verse 6 to 10 sort of elaborate and explicate what it means to have this hope 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 6 it reads, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God became known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Uh, they tell how you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, a few things happen uh, to the Thessalonian Christians, isn't it? First of all, when they, when they heard the message in the midst of severe suffering, they received it. And not only did they receive it, they received it with joy given by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't because they spoke in tongues, right, to show uh, the Holy Spirit. They had joy. It's, 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 it's something supernatural because usually when you're being persecuted, you don't experience joy. And usually if you're being persecuted for something, you, you tend to reject what causes persecution. But here, something extra, extraordinary must have happened because not only were they receiving of joy, but, but they were enduring in spite of severe persecution. In fact, they, it was so unusual, so unexplainable, that people began to talk about the faith of the Thessalonian Christians, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, which is up here, right? This area, okay? But it says there, next slide, that their faith became known everywhere, all around the Roman Empire. Now the reason this must be so is because the suffering that the Thessalonian Christians suffered was not a mild suffering or an occasional suffering. You see, if you look very carefully in verse 6, it says, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. This word severe suffering is actually the word used to, to describe the pressure which is used to describe grapes uh, when you're crushing the grapes to make wine. right? So this severe suffering didn't burst the Thessalonian Christians like grapes, right? but rather they endured and they were steadfast and stood firm. And what was even more amazing was that not only did they endure and have joy, but if you read further, the Lord's message in verse 8, continued to ring out from them in spite of their persecution. Because you know, usually if people persecute you, what is the normal reaction? You want to pull your head down, right? Keep your head down so you don't get hantam, right? But here, even though they were being severely persecuted, they were still standing firm in Christ and telling people the message. Now I think these two things really are something that we need to reflect upon. Endurance, and even in the midst of suffering, to be able to tell the gospel. You know, I remember reading somewhere that it's not under the sharpest of trials, but the longest of trials, that we are under the danger of fainting. I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, we, we, can, we, can, we can endure for a little while, but it is when we have to endure the hundredth time that you give up, you, are, you, know, you just say it's too much. I remember a pastor friend of mine used to be very strong and steadfast on standing 
on a particular doctrinal issue. And then I remember speaking to him one day, and he said, I can't stand with you on this issue anymore. And it wasn't because he disagreed with me or disagreed with what the Bible said. He said, I just don't have the strength anymore. See, the problem is to keep holding on and having the strength to hold on. And this pastor couldn't hold on anymore. But the Thessalonian Christians were very different, right? Because they faced far greater suffering, but yet they were able to endure. They were able to endure because they put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come with me to verse 9 and 10, it, it, it kind of elaborates exactly what their hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9 it says, They tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, they were able to hope because they were willing to wait for Jesus to come from heaven to rescue them from the coming wrath. That means the final judgment. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because this is very different from the prosperity gospel, which thinks of Jesus giving them riches and health and wealth today. No, this is not the, the sort of uh, hope that is in view here. But this is a, a hope that is waits patiently for Jesus to come and to save them. They will wait patiently and wait and wait for Jesus to bring them salvation to heaven. See, I think one of the hardest things in life is to wait. To really wait. Uh, I'm renting a flat at the moment. I'm looking to, to, to buy a flat. And I, I, was buying, I bought this book on, on, buy, on buying property. right? So this person was saying, the author, said that real estate is like a waiting game. Right? So you have to wait you have to wait again and you have to wait some more to get the right house at the right price, right? But the saddest thing is not missing out on the right house at the right price. But the saddest thing is to miss out on heaven. The saddest thing is to miss out on Jesus Christ because you couldn't endure. Now, if we look here in verse 10 again, the hope that the Thessalonian Christians had was not some sort of blind hope, you know, like I'm just blindly waiting for Godot or something, right? For those of you who... I use this illustration. You can, go, you can go read some books or something. Okay, waiting for Godot is this play anyway. You can go... Ask Nick. Nick knows. Nick can explain it to you. Right? You know, you're not sort of blindly waiting and waiting and waiting for something that will never materialize. There's no... You know, there's a foundation to their hope. There's a certainty to their hope. They are able to wait patiently because they know that Jesus is in heaven because He has been raised... From the dead. See, because their hope is anchored in the conviction and the certainty of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then they are able to endure because they know that Jesus will come again. See, that's why the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is so important because the resurrection gives us certain hope for the future for our salvation, for our rescue when Jesus comes again. See, that's why I always uh, shake my head in disbelief when I read of liberal Christians who deny the miracles of Jesus and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is no power of God or the Holy Spirit or deep conviction in you at all. 
If you go to the West, where I, I studied and, and worked for a few years, many years, if you go to like the States or you go to Australia or England, the, the, the most liberal churches are the fastest declining congregations in the world. They are the fastest declining because when the pressure comes and the hard times come and persecution comes, you have no, nothing tangible to hold on to. Without the resurrection of, of, of Jesus Christ, then, then what are you really hoping on? What, are you, what, what is the ground in which you base your hope on? But how different for the Thessalonian Christians because they base their hope on the one whom God had raised from the dead. Now, it's not just enduring, waiting, knowing of the resurrection of Jesus, but as we said before, it's, it's not just enduring and sort of you know, going to your tortoise shell, but it's actually enduring and still making sure that the Lord's message rings out from among us. And this idea of ringing out is the idea of like ringing a bell, right? It's like loudly. Because the human instinct when you face persecution is to keep quiet and to hide away and to blend in. So I noticed a huge difference when I was in Australia and in Singapore. I noticed in Australia, hardly anybody wears Christian t-shirts. I, I, one of the huge things I noticed coming to Singapore is people wear Christian t-shirts, you know, their church camp t-shirts or their, their university Christian union t-shirts, whatever. Just look at Nick, right? Usually Nick's always wearing Christian t-shirts, right? And I think one of the reasons why in Australia Christians don't wear Christian t-shirts is because there is more persecution as a Christian in Australia and people don't want to, uh, to stand out as a Christian to wear a Christian t-shirt. I remember this uh, quote that I read from this book. I bought this book from Popular Bookshop and it's not really a Christian book. It's written by this woman called Karen Armstrong, Religion and the History of Violence. Okay, I, I read all these boring books. And um, she's not a Christian by any means. She doesn't believe that Jesus is, is, is Son of God and things like that. But she, she wrote this section on, on Christianity, right? About how in the third century, uh, it was where the persecution of Christians was the fiercest in the Roman Empire, third century, okay? So this guy, who was a Christian theologian at the time, Tertullian, he lived from 160 to 220 AD. And he complained if the Tiber rises to the wall, I think uh, Tiber was a river in uh, Germany, I think, or somewhere in Italy. The Tiber rises to the walls. If the Nile ri- fails to rise and flood the fields, if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake or a famine or a plague, straight away the cry arises, the Christians to the lions. Okay, so it gives you an idea of how bad the persecution was in the 3rd century. But this is what she said, right? Yet against all odds, by the 3rd century, Christianity had, bec- had also become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. So from a secular, I guess, uh, logical way of, 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 of trying to understand religion, which is what she's trying to do, she cannot understand how Christianity can survive under this terrible persecution. Well, we know, isn't it? We know how Christianity can survive, and it's here in 1 Thessalonians. It's because Christians have a certain hope in Jesus Christ. We are willing to wait, even under persecution, because we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, I think that 
we are facing a time of uh, growing persecution as Christians. I, I don't want to be alarmist. You know, I don't want to, 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 you know, some sort of hysterical fear monger or something. But I think the signs are all there. If you, if you look around, uh, times will get tougher for us as Christians. So I, I just, uh, in case for those of you who are not very aware, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you what's been happening around the world recently. And, and it just gives you a flavor, especially in the West, of the persecution, which I think it, sooner or later, I think it really has come to Singapore. So if you, if you see up here, this 70-year-old woman, and she's been a florist for more than 40 years. Okay, you can look her up on your own Google, your own time. Okay, next slide. So she owns this flower shop called Arlene's Flowers, and I think she owns it for many decades in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the, all the time that she's uh, owned this shop, uh, she's employed uh, people who are uh, homosexual in orientation, and she's also served a homosexual Couples. In fact, she served this particular couple for nine years. But then this couple, uh, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, fast. Sorry. This couple uh, wanted her to prepare flowers for their same-sex wedding. At which she said she couldn't do it. Right. So the next slide. She said that even though she served this couple for nine years as just normal customers, she could not be a part of their same-sex marriage ceremony because as a Christian she couldn't agree with what was taking place. But as a result, okay, uh, next slide, right? But as a result, uh, the couple sued her in a civil case. Uh, civil is like, you know, just person to person. And uh, the, she, the ruling was that she must publicly apologize, she must uh, donate $5,000 to this uh, LGBT youth center and stop refusing to service people uh, due to their sexual orientation in terms of same sex. Okay, uh, next slide. But then the state of Washington, uh, which is the state itself, sued her and said that uh, she was personally liable and she must provide full wedding support in the ceremonies, including custom design work to, to decorate the ceremony, delivery to the forum, staying at the ceremony to touch out arrangements and assist the wedding party. Okay, so as a Christian, uh, that's very, very difficult, isn't it? Okay, so this only happened uh, in January. Next slide. So recently as well, when is this? Uh, April, April 26. Uh, this, um, uh, uh, some labor foundation also in Oregon ruled that this Christian baker had to be fined uh, $185,000 for emotional damage right? because they didn't bake a cake for, um, for again, a same-sex wedding uh, ceremony. Okay, next one. Oh, here it is. Okay, for emotional suffering. Okay, next one. Okay, so this one, um, this uh, pizza shop also uh, closed down because of uh, all this media, social media uh, attacks against them uh, in uh, where was it? Indiana. And this last week, okay, next one. Uh, this Irish bakery was fined five hundred dollar, uh, five hundred pounds because they uh, also didn't want to participate in the same sex uh, ceremony. Now, obviously. None of us here are florists, bakers, or um, well, pizza. Oh, there's only one person in our church who makes pizza in the first service. So we might think, well, okay, lah. It's, it's quite okay for us. Because, you know, since we, we don't do all these things, I mean, I'm only an accountant. They don't really need accountants at the wedding. Right? I'll be safe, right? Okay? 
But I think that even as Christians, uh, the problem is that in the public arena now, uh, to even voice out your objections as a Christian to, to, to on moral and sexual issues uh, brings down a lot of disapproval upon you and you may even lose your job because of it. So here this guy, um, next one, uh, Brendan Ike. Uh, he actually supported traditional marriage as part of uh, this in California, as part of the political campaign, right? And as a result, when he was appointed the CEO of Mozilla, which makes a Firefox search engine, uh, he was actually um, forced to step down as CEO. Uh, this other guy, uh, this guy called Kevin Cochran, was a deacon, a Sunday school teacher and Bible study leader at, uh, in Atlanta, in the Elizabeth Baptist Church. And he wrote in a Christian book that he was against um, same-sex marriage. And as a result, he also uh, was fired from his position. So, next one. So, in, uh, in terms of university and uh, you know, that sort of uh, study arena, uh, this is what two students said, right? Unless you embrace, applaud, or advocate the homosexual lifestyle of same-sex marriage, your views, your voice, even your work on behalf of the poor and suffering are not welcome in the public square. So I think that these things sort of show uh, the mood of society against, uh, I guess, uh, what, are, what Christian values, in terms, especially in terms of when it comes to terms of sexuality, uh, and, and, and I guess uh, the, the, the Christian convictions that we have. And increasingly, it will, it will force us to, as Christians, uh, to come under persecution, under hardship. Now, I guess it's not uh, secularism that's the problem. It's not even atheism, because that's sort of been around since uh, the 17th century. I just think that it's the mood of society which is becoming more and more militant to, uh, against religion and Christianity in particular. So, I remember I got this quote here from, uh, you know, this guy is Harry Potter, right? So Harry Potter said, no, I'm sorry, no, I see Daniel Radcliffe said, uh, I'm an atheist, a militant atheist when religion starts to uh, starts impacting on, on legislation. So I think effectively, this is sort of the view of uh, the, 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 the social consensus on the West, where it basically feels that religion uh, has no place in the public arena, must more and more be marginalized to your own uh, setting and, and at most uh, just within church, but not in the public sector, right? So I think if we stand up as Christians, you will find that um, even to voice out your Christian convictions will cause you to, to be persecuted. So again, uh, let's, let's refer to this woman again, Karen Armstrong. She says, um, American Protestant fund, fundamentalism was not usually an agent of violence. It was to a degree a response to violence, uh, the psychological violence of the aggressive disdain of the secularist establishment. Okay, you can tell she likes very big words all the time. Okay, but fundamentally, th those two things are in view, right? The, the militancy and the aggressiveness of the secular society will continue to press down on us as Christians. And the great temptation for us would be to, to, to lose hope, uh, maybe to lose our way, lose our faith, to compromise. But I think that what we've learned today um, is that in this testing time now ahead of us, uh, we must keep enduring. We must keep enduring because Jesus died, Jesus Christ died and rose again. He will come again to rescue us and we need to wait patiently for his return. And even as we endure, uh, the gospel and the Lord's message must continue to go out from us. Uh, one Christian writer said, um, 
He quoted uh, Winston Churchill on the eve of uh, World War II, or actually many years before World War II, and he said, uh, there is a gathering storm coming. You can see the storm coming. It's, it's, it's there. It's, uh, you know, it won't run away. It won't go away. It's coming. And uh, as we see this coming storm coming, we just have to continue to, to press on our Christian faith, to not despair, but to continue to endure in the hope of Jesus Christ, and to continue to keep proclaiming the gospel uh, fearlessly to the world. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for you have chosen us, not that we have chosen you. That your word came to each and every one of us here with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. We thank you for the love that you've given us in Jesus Christ that through your love you sent your son to die on the cross for us. But he didn't just hang on the cross, he died and he rose again three days later. And we know that through his resurrection, he is now with you in heaven, and he has promised to come to rescue us from the final judgment. Dear Father, we pray that these truths will truly be uh, deep, anchored in our hearts, uh, keeping us to hold on uh, no matter how difficult life gets. And even as we endure, that we will not uh, be ashamed of Jesus Christ, but will continue to stand up for Jesus and to stand for Jesus and to proclaim Him, to proclaim the good news so that people will be saved too. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.